the nation of Bosnia, Herzegovina, there is uh, probably the most, one of the most iconic images, uh, if you just did a Google search of Bosnia, one of the images that will often show up is the Stare Most. It's the, just literally translated as the old bridge. And it's uh, this old stone-arched bridge that spans the Naretva River and joins together both sides of the city of Mostar in Bosnia. Pat and Abraham, do you, have you guys been there? I, I, one of these times, if I get to go back to Bosnia, Lord willing, I, I'd love to see this bridge. But um, uh, it was commissioned in 1557 by an Ottoman sultan, and it was completed nine years later. When it was built, it was the largest man-made arch in the world at the time. The architect who designed and constructed the bridge was charged under pain of death to successfully complete the project. Legend has it that on the day uh, he, he and his team, they hoisted the keystone in place, which was, is that center stone on that arch that both sides are leaning toward. And so when that stone is put in place, it supports the, the weight of those arches and pushes puts the pressure outward. And when, the, when that stone was, the day the stone was put in place, legend says that he got his shroud ready and prepared for his funeral in case it collapsed. Uh, now, the bridge did not collapse, and it stood for 427 years until, sadly, during the Bosnian War, it was destroyed in November 1993 by, the, by Croat shelling. But that historic bridge has since been rebuilt, so you can, can see it today. And there was a new keystone, that stone set in place in August of 2003, and it brought the two halves of that bridge together again. And, and, and understandably, given the history in that nation, it was a symbolic moment of, of hopefulness that there might be peoples brought together as that bridge was restored. Well... Take that image and, and, and just think of this. If the gospel, if the Christian faith is an arch bridge that connects sinful man to holy God, then, then the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is that keystone which holds it together. This event has these massive, sweeping, universal, eternal implications, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Human history was forever changed on this day, this account we just read. But listen, it also has very personal and very specific implications. Individual lives have been changed. Your lives, many of you in this room, have been changed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You consider, go back to the bridge, you consider the, the massive Difference that keystone made when it was set in place in that Mostar bridge, and it, and it made a difference in human history. It was this testament, this lasting testament to science, the science of engineering and architecture. It, it changed that whole region for, for centuries, just having that bridge com, constructed across that river. But you know what else? It, 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 made, a, it made a massive difference in some old Bosnian woman's life when she could leave her house in the morning and safely cross that river to get to the market on the other side and buy produce. You see, 
And so it is with the resurrection. There are these sweeping, massive, uh, universal implications of the empty tomb. And Paul makes much of this in 1 Corinthians 15. He gives us this wide-angle lens of all that the, the, the resurrection of Jesus means and how eternity has been changed by it. But there are also these very personal and individual and local implications. And interestingly, that's what John zeroes in on in this gospel account under the Spirit's inspiration. It's not this wide-angle lens, it's this zoom lens. And he just focuses in on a woman and his interaction, Jesus' interaction with a woman and, and with Peter and John. And, so, and it doesn't just focus on any people, it focuses on very unlikely people, very ordinary people, people who are slow to get it. But ordinary people are extraordinarily changed by the fact that he is risen. That's what this passage does for us. This is, this is, Jesus is, of course, the real focus of, of John 20. But, but surprisingly, the, the, the main supporting actor is not an actor, but an actress. It's Mary Magdalene. And Jesus entrusts the most critical testimony in the history of the world to a woman whose testimony meant absolutely nothing in her day. And so this good news of the resurrection, it's for unlikely people. Not for heroic people, not for airbrushed celebrities. It's for ordinary, even odd people who don't get it. It's for people like you and me, no offense. The risen Jesus has the power to change your life. To change your life for all eternity. To change your life today. And so I just want to walk through John's account in the few minutes before we come and we worship at the table. And, and just see the power of grace. Power and grace of Jesus at work in changing lives through His resurrection. So verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So who is this Mary Magdalene who features so prominently, not in the verses we just read, not just in the verses we read, but all the way through verse 18, which is where we'll look today. Well, Mary, first thing, Mary was part of Jesus' ministry team. We see this in Luke chapter 8. She was part of a group of women who, who worked and, 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 and gave financially to support the, the needs, the financial needs of Jesus and his little traveling team. So she, she and other women would travel around with Jesus and, and, and had some means of wealth and they supported and, uh, the, the, the ministry team of Jesus. Secondly, another thing about Mary is she had once been possessed by seven demons. We also learn this in Luke 8. She used to be tortured day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year by these demons. And then one day Jesus comes into her hometown and sets her free from that demonic possession. And her life is changed. Those demons instantly obey the command of Jesus and they leave her. And so her life up to that point had been filled with nothing but, but torment and fear and anxiety and, and, and just terror. And then Jesus fills it with joy and excitement and, uh, and the excitement of understanding the scripture. Her eyes are open and, and so she never looks back. She leaves her former life and goes and follows after her Savior. We also know Mary because she's called Mary Magdalene. That, the Magdalene just means that she was from the town of Magdala. She was of that 
area. Magdala was a city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a wealthy city. It sat on this important trade route. And, and so it was a very prosperous place, but it was also a very wicked place, particularly known for sexual immorality. And so the tradition, there's tradition that goes from the 4th or 5th century that, that Mary had been a prostitute before she came to to know Christ. That may be true, but that may just be slanderous. We have, well, there's no evidence in Scripture that she, uh, she was a prostitute. It's possible because there would have been many in this town, but, but what we can say is that Mary came from an incredibly broken past. What we do know. And her life was this train wreck before she met Jesus. She was a shattered soul, but Jesus put her back together again. So there's much we don't know about Mary, and, and I look forward to, to talking with her one day in glory and, and learning more. But one thing that's clear from all the gospel accounts is that she loved Jesus and was incredibly loyal to Him. And so where, where is Mary when the one who totally transformed her life is dying on the cross? Where is she? She's there. Disciples gone. She's there. She's, she won't leave as Jesus is dying this gruesome, painful, violent, uh, gory death. She cannot bring herself to leave. She just gazes at the foot of the cross at her Lord. And as soon as the Sabbath is over, after, her, after Jesus' body has been buried in, in the tomb, she runs to the tomb, the text says, while it's still dark. One, one writer said she was last at, the, at his cross and first at his grave. She stayed longest there and was soonest here. And so this once broken, once empty, once outcast, once hopeless Mary of Magdala rushes to the grave while it's still dark to attend to Jesus' body. Now the question is, what did she expect to find there? What did she hope to find there? An empty tomb? An angelic announcement, the risen Jesus. No. She expected to find Jesus' rotting corpse. She wanted to find that. She wanted to find his dead, decaying body. That's what she expected. That's what she was looking for. She was there, along with other women, according to Luke's account, to take care of the remaining burial process. That's all she was there to do. You put all four gospel accounts together, it seems that Mary gets there ahead of the other women and she's probably sprinting there and she sees that the stone has been taken away from the tomb and she panics. She's not excited. She's, she, Jesus' uh, Jesus's words about rising from the dead in three days, they don't suddenly flood her mind and her thoughts. That's not it at all. She is scared and she is distraught. The thought of the empty tomb, we've, it's thrilling to us. We sing about it. And when those words, we get into a song and walking through the gospel, when it gets to the fact that Christ is risen, we lift our hands, we belt out our voices, and we should. But that first Easter morning, that was not the case when they saw the empty tomb. They were, they were in utter despair. And so, so, so the sadness, despair, confusion, fear, that's what that side of that empty tomb brought that first Easter morning. Verse 2, so she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that's John the writer, that's just him referring to himself, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away, the, taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So her knee-jerk reaction is to take off and find Peter and John, Jesus' closest disciples, closest followers. And what did she tell them? What did she assume happened? Somebody stole his body. 
his grave robbers, maybe, maybe his enemies. We don't, we don't know, but somebody's taken his body. And so you think about all that Mary has faced in the last few days, her, her love for Jesus, her loyalty to him. She's seen Jesus betrayed by his closest followers, his body brutalized. He's been murdered. He's been buried in this grave. Now on top of all of that horror of death, to add insult to injury, somebody's had the, just the wicked audacity to take his body and to make further sport of him. And so it's more than her soul can bear. So she runs to Peter and John in verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I know our minds, we love to think about this scenario, but maybe Peter's older, maybe he's carrying a few extra pounds, not sure. I can relate to that. Um, but I, I don't. I don't doubt that this was talked about later by John and Peter as they interchange. I would be talking if I was John. Um, verse five. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths. John saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So Peter and John start running to the tomb. Peter falls behind. John doesn't wait up for him. No, that's not how guys work. He goes on ahead. And, um, and gets there first. He peeks in the tomb. He sees that it's empty. He sees the clothes, but he doesn't actually go into the tomb. He stays on the outside. Verse 6, Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went straight into the tomb. He's slower, but he's impulsive. So he, he doesn't hesitate. He just goes straight into the tomb, bolts in. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, but lying not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he, and he saw and believed. Now, it's not as obvious in English, and I, I don't like to do this often, but I think it's helpful here. But there are, there are three different words, different Greek words. The New Testament's written in the Greek language, and we thankfully have translated into English. But there are three different Greek words for seeing in this passage. The first one is in verse 5. John looked into the tomb. That's the Greek word blepo. It's just, it's just simple seeing. He noticed the grave clothes. He didn't think too hard about it. He saw the tomb was empty. He saw the grave clothes. He just saw it like I'm seeing the back wall. Second word is that Peter saw the linen claws. And this little Greek word is theoreo. You can hear where we get our English word theory from that. He he. Peter took a long, careful look in there. He went in and he looked around and he began to theorize what, is, what, is, what has happened here. He's trying to, to make sense. He's paying close attention, noticing how the claw, grave clothes are arranged. And, and it looks like the body just kind of dissolved through the linen. And yet the face cloth is over here uh, folded up neatly off to the side. And so he's trying to, trying to piece it all together. He's theorizing. He's seeing and trying to piece it together in his mind. Then there's a third word, and it said John saw and believed. It says the little Greek word, harao. It means to, to see, to perceive the significance of something. He, he sees with understanding. And so John really saw what had taken place, and he believed. And so, note, note the great emphasis. It's odd, isn't it, when you think about it, the, the emphasis that John places on the grave clothes of Jesus. For him, the linen cloths are determinative. That settles it. 
He, he had, a, had a group stolen the body of Jesus. They wouldn't have taken the time to carefully unfold the clothes and kind of lay them out and, and fold the head cloth over here. No, they would have just left it in a mess on the floor and taken off. Grave robbing was risky and it, and it, was, it was severely punished if you were caught. So they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have done that. So what John saw was, this, was like this linen cocoon that had just kind of collapsed on itself. And this, again, this face cloth to the side. And so that's enough to persuade John that Jesus is alive. But neither John nor Jesus, they, they see, they, or John nor Peter, they, they don't see Jesus at this point. And so verse 9, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he, might, that he must rise from the dead. So this verse to me is like a head slap for the Apostle John. He's like, oh, how do we miss it? How do we not see this? After all that Jesus said about being betrayed and crucified and that He would rise again on the third day, and you know He said a lot because even Jesus' enemies knew all about what He said because this is why they put guards at the tomb. This is, they said that we're afraid that somebody's gonna, one of His disciples is going to steal His body because He said that He would rise from the dead on the third day. So if Jesus' enemies knew that Jesus was talking about raising again, how often did He talk to His disciples and His followers about this? John said, we didn't get it. We didn't connect what Scripture said and what Jesus said and, and what we're seeing in front of our own eyes. We, it didn't all make sense to us. So what did Peter and John do? Verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. Well, that's kind of a letdown. It's kind of anticlimactic. But you think about it, the, the crazy whirlwind of thoughts and feelings that they must have experienced that day. From the deepest sorrow and grief at Jesus' death to, to the sense of guilt and shame for deserting Jesus in His hour of greatest need and denying Him. And now hope and, and, and maybe fear that Jesus is alive. And what's He going to say to us when He sees us? If He indeed is alive. I just imagine Peter and John just kind of staring at the floor in the house all day. Just trying to, trying to piece this all together. Trying to pull it together in their minds, remembering and rehearsing all the things Jesus said, recounting Old Testament prophecies, uh, thinking back, what do we see in the tomb today and the clothes? And So that's Peter and John. They're back at home. They still haven't seen Him. What about Mary? Does she go home too? No. Mary's all left alone at the tomb. We don't even know if she, she may have been behind Peter and John, and so she may not have even interacted with him at the tomb, but she's, she's alone, she's uninformed, she's sobbing. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping. That's just a little tear trickling down her face, but wailing. This is that eastern death wail. This loud wailing from the deepest region of her heart that's just aching. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She, she can't bring herself to go in. The grief is just overwhelming her, but she can't bring herself to leave either. She, she's not going anywhere because of her love for Jesus. But verse 12, and she saw two angels in white. Now, they're apparently in some sort of disguise. It's not the white like lightning and, you know, falls down afraid that you're going to be stricken dead right in the moment. She doesn't seem to recognize them as angels. But she sees these two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. 
verse 14, having said this, she turned around. Maybe the angels motioned to her, why don't you look back that way. And she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Why? Why didn't she recognize him? Because of the tears? Maybe. Because he looked different? It could be. I mean, the last time she saw him, he was in terrible condition. And now the effects of the fall and sin-bearing curse have been removed. Because she wasn't expecting to see him? Absolutely. She wasn't looking for a live Jesus. Um, we, so, so, again, but get this. The first physical appearance that Jesus makes, the resurrected Jesus makes, is to Mary Magdalene. He's just conquered sin and death. History has forever changed. The history of the universe hinges on what just happened. But he takes time to speak to this one ordinary, unlikely woman with his broken past. He speaks to her. And he reveals himself to her. This woman needs to be tended to and cared for personally, pastorally. And he takes time to do it. Now the focus in John 20, it's not on hell's gates crashing and burning. It's on, it's a quiet conversation in the garden. It's interesting. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus says, Why are you you weeping? Don't you... I mean, he's thinking, Don't you remember what I said? Who are you seeking? Aren't you seeking the Messiah? Didn't God say that He wouldn't allow His Holy One to undergo decay? He's not scolding her. He's, He's helping her to think. And... Still doesn't recognize recognize Jesus' voice. Again, she's still trying to find a dead corpse, and so she says, "You tell me where his body, tell me where his dead, stinking body is, and I will go there personally, and I'll carry it back." Her love is persistent. You know, we can we learn we can learn a lot of things from Mary, but if if there's anything that we can we we are stricken by her. We, we learn this, because for, for some, of a, some of us, there is no joy and there are no tears. We're, we're just, it's just kind of empty religiosity for some. We, we lack Mary's zeal. We lack Mary's weeping. Our religion is kind of lifeless and empty. We're just kind of flatlined and just a matter of duty. Maybe you were raised going to church, and so that's what you do. You go to church on Sundays. Let me just say, the reason you maybe don't have Mary's zeal or her love or her joy or her sorrow, uh, the reason maybe your heart doesn't seem as big as Mary's here, maybe because you don't understand the enormous debt of sin that you've been released from. And, and I say that in Luke chapter 7. This is not the account of Mary Magdalene. I, I know some have assume that, but this is a story of a woman with this reputation for sexual immorality. Uh, I, but there's, there's application here. And, and so this woman crashes this dinner party hosted by these religious kind of gurus, talking heads, the leaders of the day. And it's in honor of Jesus. And she comes in, kissing Jesus' feet, wetting her hair, wiping his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee who's hosting this, he just comes unhinged. And he's thinking to himself, the text says, 
Does Jesus not know who this is? How can he allow this sinful woman to, to touch him like that, to touch his feet? Doesn't he know who this is? And Jesus knows, the text says, knows exactly what he's thinking. And he says, answers the man who hasn't spoken a word out loud. And, and he tells this story. But the punchline of the story is this. And I'm just having to move quickly and summarize. Jesus' punchline is this. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And so the principle is, those who are forgiven much, they love much. And so the, the, there's this mathematical correlation. The, the more we understand the debt of sin that we've been forgiven in Jesus Christ. I don't mean we wallow in our sin and we spend our time talking, thinking and dwelling on our past. But the, the more we, we understand the, the load of sin that has been lifted from our lives and, from, and, the, and the debt of sin that Jesus has is is, is paid for us, the more we get that, the more we love Him. And I think that's, that's Mary. Her, her life was in utter shambles and until Jesus came. And so she sees Him and she has this love for Him and she weeps for Him and she's joyful when she sees Him. And so this is, this is how you understand that. So maybe we have a superficial understanding of our... Uh, of, uh, maybe our love for Jesus wanes because we have a superficial and shallow understanding of our brokenness apart from Jesus. So until you see yourself as shattered as Mary saw herself, um, you're not going to have a heart for Christ like Mary. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, I love this. She didn't recognize woman because that's not how Jesus had ever addressed her. But her name, Mary, she had heard him say that so many times. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, teacher. And the scales are removed from her eyes and from her faith and from her hope and light and life just flood her soul when Jesus says her name. What a, what a beautiful picture. Here's the good and gentle Shepherd that John has talked about already in his gospel account. The one who knows his sheep by name. He lovingly reaches out to this one poor wounded sheep and says, Mary. Now again, Jesus accomplished something of eternal, universal significance. And yet in this moment, it doesn't eclipse this very personal dimensions of, of the resurrection. You, you Listen. Brothers and sisters, you are not just a number in Jesus' book. He, you are an individual. You are an individual soul with individual needs, and you have a name, and Jesus knows it. He knows us by name. And so this, this glorious resurrection of Jesus, it's, it's not just for the world as a whole and history as a whole. It's for Mary. It's for you. It's for me today. And so we know from verse 17, when, when he says this, she, she clings to Jesus. Does she hug him? Does she fall on, her, on the ground and, and, and grab his ankles? We're not sure exactly, but, but if you've ever, if you parents, if you've ever been separated from your child for even just five or ten minutes and you're reunited with a young child, I hope not like an 18-year-old child, but... Uh, but you're, you're reunited. You think they're lost in a store and you can't find them. And you're, you know, your worst case scenario, your mind goes, starts racing. And then you're reunited and you squeeze them and you don't let go until you start to choke the life out of them. So now you have your child with you, but you can't breathe. And, and that's, that's kind of Mary here. That's the picture I get. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, 
Do not cling to me. That's not him. God can't breathe. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I have not yet ascended to the Father. I was not saying, don't you dare touch me, Mary. Get your hands off me. You might contaminate me. You're going to get me dirty. No, in fact, he's going to tell his disciples, touch me, feel my scars. That's not it. Jesus says to her, do not cling to me. Why? Because things have changed. Mary says, Rabboni, teacher, and she clings to Jesus. Her joy is from the fact that Jesus is back with her just like things used to be. He's, we, want you, we want you to be our teacher. We, wanna, we want you to go. We'll, we'll go everywhere you go. You tell us what to do, what to say, where to stay, how to live. Just, we'll just follow you just like before Jesus, just like it used to be. You'll be our rabbi. We'll follow you around. Her joy stems from the personal material presence of Jesus. It's not yet from the fact that she understands that Jesus has conquered sin and death in her place and that he must ascend to the Father and complete the mission. So he's saying to her, things, things are different. There's a new way to cling to me now. And so he's taking the training wheels off for Mary here. I know when you kids, when you have, if you have parents who've taught kids to ride bikes and, and they, they have training wheels at first and, and so they, they go around and I remember, man, your kids get really good with that and, those, and, and they, they, they just get, they get fast on those little bikes, little tiny little bikes with training wheels and they're taking sharp turns and they're going over jumps and they're doing the skid stop and, and it's great. And then you talk to them when they say, all right, let's, let's, you, got, you, you can do this. You can you ride without training wheels. They don't want the training wheels off. That's boring. It's like you're going backwards because now I can't do any jumps and I can't, I can't, I've got, you know, bloody knees and elbows and, and this is not fun. But parent knows, no, it, it's going to be hard, but you're, you get, it's going to be better. But you can learn to ride without training wheels. And this is, this is, in a sense, what Jesus is saying. Mary thinks the best thing that can happen to her is have Jesus back and everything go back to the way it was. And Jesus says, no, there's something better, Mary. There's something better for Mary and for us. But, verse 17, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He's saying there's going to be a, a closeness of fellowship that you never, you never thought possible. It's coming. And there's going to be a clinging to me, an intimacy with me that's beyond anything you can imagine, anything you've ever experienced before. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. What a day. What a, what a day. What a difference a day makes. I mean, you think of the depth of despair and sorrow that enveloped his followers, and then the heights of hope and joy now. This tiny, as we'll see next week and following, this tiny little scared group of hopeless, faithless, paranoid disciples huddled together in a locked room is, is going to be transformed into this bold, courageous, fearless, uh, faith-filled, joyful missionary band that will, as writer Acts says, it will upset the world. And the ripples of that are still felt today as we proclaim Christ crucified and risen again. And so, so there are these enormous implications of the empty tomb that, that transcend generations and have changed history. But the resurrection is also very local. It's very personal. It changes lives. It's changed many of your lives and it continues to. It can change everybody here. The risen Jesus has the power to change your life. What difference can it make 
in your life that Jesus lives. I, I don't have time to walk through my whole list. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pick a couple here. One, how, are you struggling to find hope in this world full of tur- turmoil? Are you scared? Are you shaken by the headlines locally and globally? Does it seem like chaos is ruling the day? You uh, folks that are, 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 are up here because of the hurricane and and or you, just the, the situation in our nation and around our world and terrorism. Is it, are you just gripped by fear and, and this kind of constant, maybe more of a low-level anxiety that just is controlling you and you're seized by it? Don't, don't deny it, just admit it, but let, let the resurrection of Jesus Christ speak to you this morning. First Peter 1, Peter goes from being a coward denying Jesus, running, hiding, and he turns into this lion for the gospel after Jesus raises from the dead. But he says, he writes in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you get that? A, a living hope, not a, not a dim hope, not a sickly hope, not this faint hope, not wishful thinking, but this full, vibrant, alive hope. And, and he's writing to people who are suffering. Their whole world is caving in because of the persecution of the church in that day. And, and, and people are dying and people are being imprisoned. And, and it just seems like everything's coming to an end. And he says, no, you've been born again to a living hope. Why? Because... Through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Nobody can touch it. Who by God's power, you're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. He won't let you go. We have this, we have this hope. And that's, 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 that's buoy, not, not by, um, uh, not by our location, not by our circumstances, not by a change in, 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 in the headlines. No, our hope is, is fixed in Christ who has risen from the dead. So you, it shows up. It changes us. Uh, is your body wearing out? Physically, you're declining, breaking down. Does the resurrection have any say, anything to say to you today? Absolutely. You know this. Jesus was raised as the first fruits of our resurrection. Even though these bodies are being stricken down and they're falling apart, we have a building from God that awaits us. Eternal, settled in the heavens. A new resurrection body that will be made in the likeness of Jesus' resurrection body. Oh, there's help. There's hope for us there. That's not pie in the sky. That's real. That's something I can hold on to. It doesn't make the physical pain I'm going through nothing, but it sustains me through that pain. Are you afraid of death? Listen, maybe you're here. and are, are, Not just dying, but, but do you have no sense of hope beyond the grave? Death is an enemy we all will face. We will all die. Um, we're, we're all one breath away from the vastness that is eternity. And, and God has put that sense of eternity in our hearts. Everyone dies. Everyone is dying. It may be ten years from now. It may be ten minutes from now. I mean, there are going to be people, I'm not trying to be morbid, or, and I'm, I'm certainly not being tried, but there are people who have fled, rightly fled uh, the hurricane for safety of their lives, and there are going to be people who have heart attacks and have car accidents. And there may be a tree limb that falls on a house here. And, 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 and so we, you, you just don't know. 
In Acts 17, though, Paul is talking to these movers and shakers of his day, the intellectual big dogs of the day, and he says that God has given proof to every person that you're going to die and you're going to face judgment. And the proof that he's given is that Jesus, the text says, he's given proof to all by raising Jesus from the dead. So this, are you ready for that day? Well, Jesus died and he rose so that you can be ready. He, he died to take the punishment for your sin. He rose to offer life and to give life to those who believe in him. And so Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will die, but you can be saved by faith. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. So you can, you can find life, new life today, by by confessing that Jesus, confessing that Jesus is Lord, confessing that you're a sinner and you've fallen short, but Christ died for your sins and he rose from the dead. Acknowledge that, say that with your mouth, and you can be saved today and have life, not be afraid of death. One other thing I'll just say as we come to the table, what difference does this make, this empty tomb make as we come to the table it makes all the difference it means that what we're involved in here is not some dry ritual commemorating a dead a dead man it's not it it's a reminder that jesus lives he remains lord of his church he's present with us we come and we meet the risen christ at this at this table not in the elements that's not it's not what we believe but but they're physical reminders that christ is present with us and so Jesus is present by, by, in resurrected power by the Holy Spirit. And so we come, we eat, and we're strengthened in our faith as we do. So team's going to come on up, and we're going uh, to sing one song, and then we'll come and gather at the table and worship here. Remember the risen Christ together. Uh, but let me pray as, as they come and get ready. Father, we thank you that Christ, you died and you rose. Uh, we we see ourselves not in um, we see ourselves not as 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 those that would have would have gotten it immediately. We were unlikely. We were ordinary. We were flawed. We did we wouldn't have gotten it either. But you but you've opened our eyes to see the truth. So we thank you. It's your mercy. And I pray that we would. Let the ramifications of, of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead not just, just kind of bounce in our minds as an apologetic to the world about history, how history has been changed, but I pray that it would change us today. It would change how we, how we have lunch with our families. It would change how we uh, prepare for tomorrow. It would change how we help our neighbors in the days to come. It would change how we go to work. It would change how we... Uh, relate to our classmates at school. It would change how we pray. It would change how we eat and drink at the Lord's table. It would change how we sing. It would change us, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.